Hello, I'm Lara, one of the student interns here at TuneFM. I hope you're well this Tuesday afternoon. If you've just joined us, then welcome to Precedents and Politics, a show where we talk about all things law and politics. I have a special guest interview for you today. We are talking all about the PLT program that if you want to be admitted to the law profession, it needs to be completed after you finish your university studies. I spoke with Morton Hirschdorfer from the College of Law late last week to learn more about their PLT program. It's a bit of a long interview, but I hope you find it as informative as I did. Let's dive straight in to this chat. On the show today, I am very excited to have a special guest. I'm here with College of Law's Executive Director of the Pre-Administration Program for New South Wales, Morton Hirschdorfer. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Morton. My pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me. Ah, that's okay. And I should also add that College of Law are sponsors of the UNE Law Student Society as well. So very excited to have you on the show. So that we can get to know a little bit more about College of Law and the PLT program that you guys provide, I wanted to um, ask you a couple of questions about that. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on what really the PLT program is all about? Sure. Um, so by the time students get to us, they, they've had a, a number of years, three, five or more at uh, university learning the really important foundations of law. Um, uh, and it is, as you'd expect, pitched at a fairly high level theoretical academic uh, sort of uh, place because that's what students need to know. Uh, and it forms the underpinning of everything they're going to do uh, in practice or uh, hopefully a very long and rewarding professional career. But of course, what as important as that is, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily prepare students for uh, life and practice. What, what do lawyers actually do? It's they're sitting at the desk every day, nine to five. So that's where we come in. Uh, we, if, if I were doing this presentation live and if I had a PowerPoint presentation, our little College of Law logo would be there. And I always point out to everybody that it's that's been our logo for nearly 50 years now, and it symbolizes a bridge. So that's really, in a nutshell, what College of Law is. We're the bridge between the academic theoretical study of law and the, okay, how do you actually do it? Practical bits of, of law. So all the, the it, so our program can be summarized as, this, as um, demonstrating and teaching and exposing and giving students experience um, in, in doing the skills that will help translate everything you know about law into a, a, a usable um, thing for the community, for the courts, and especially for your clients. It's, it's really just about, okay, how do you take everything you know and communicate it in a clear, concise, persuasive way to the multiple audiences that you will be talking to throughout practice? As an example, you know, we, we focus much more on things like drafting documents, your statements of claim, letters of advice, affidavits, um, wills, deeds, uh, the things you've been exposed to at law school, you know what they all are, and you know, mm. you know the purpose they serve, but chances are pretty good you've never had to actually draft any of them. And, and um, I, I know UNE has a, 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 relatively speaking, a pretty practical approach to law. Um, you know, there are 42 universities across the country that all feed into our program. Some have more practical stuff than others. And, and UNE students are lucky in the sense that you've, you've already had been exposed to this and you've, you've done a fair bit of it. So it's more of a refresher for a lot of things than actually coming to it 
new. But um, to summarize, that, that's really what we're about. Is it is the um, taking you under our wing, uh, showing you the ropes, having the this is how you really do it conversation. Yeah, excellent. I do feel like I I know like as students we have conversations about how, um, yeah, how we would sometimes we would prefer to have some of that practical stuff, a bit more of that practical stuff thrown into our degree because it does help cement that knowledge that we're trying to have. Uh, For example, the subject I'm doing at the moment is civil dispute resolution. And to read those processes in a textbook is really quite mind numbing. Like, (laughs) It's not great. (laughs) But to be able to um, actually like do it in practice would make a huge difference and would definitely increase my memory span and ability to actually like um, have some functional knowledge as to how these things work because at the moment the words on the page are just not really doing it for me. Yeah well look as an example just to to, to build on what you've just said um, you know uh, our civil litigation subject um, starts with the first task and in that first task there are three activities and they're all based around the same file. So it, we do everything, we simulate practice. That's the whole point of college is, is to get you doing things the way you would do it in practice. And in practice, everything is file-based. You've got a client, they've got a matter, you've got a file. And, yeah. and it's got everything in a file you need. So the, the, the very first thing in civil litigation is here's a client file. It's a fact scenario. There'll be a, a dispute of some sort, uh, usually a breach of contract sort of matter, a simple straightforward contract. Somebody you know, was going to provide a service, somebody else was going to pay for it, something happened, payment wasn't made, they're arguing over whether there was a breach or even whether there was a contract, whatever it might be. So those are all things, concepts you're familiar with. You, you've studied all that at, at law school, but you've never probably seen one or done one. So we start with the first activity is analyze the case. Uh, you know, is is there a, a remedy? Uh, do they have a strong case? Can, what 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 it was their contract? What were the terms of the contract? So we use a device called the proof making model. So we give we tell you how that works. We give you a matrix so you can plug things in. Is there a contract? When was it formed? What was the consideration? All the things you know, but you've never seen it sort of in a table that, that then leads you to the conclusion: yes, there's a contract. No, there's not a contract. Or yes, there was a breach. No, there's not a breach. Or what are the damages? All the the things you need to prove. So that's the first thing: is you analyze it. Then then and then you submit that and you get feedback on that. From, from your lecture, then then you're told, right, in the next activity, now that's about drafting a letter of advice. So now that you've analyzed the client's claim, explain it to the client. Do they have a case or not? Is it strong or weak? Do they have the evidence they need? What more do they need? What's the court process? How long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? What, you know, all that kind of stuff. What, um, you know, are they going to need to brief counsel and, and whatever else you might need to, limitation periods, all, again, all the things you've studied, but you've studied them in the abstract. And now you have to actually explain all that to a client you know, in a way that they understand and language that they understand, not language aimed at a professor or another lawyer, but language aimed at your lay client. Mm, yeah. And, and then, then we tell you for the third activity, all right, now they've given you, they've heard your advice, they've given you instructions to, to sue the other party. So now draft a statement of claim. So now you're, again, you're taking all that information and now you're putting it into a court document to start the proceedings to, to get things underway. So it's, they're, they're bite-sized activities. You know, the days of writing long essays and sitting exams are long over. That's not a great way for you to learn the skills we're teaching. And it's, and it's a pretty terrible way for us to assess whether you're any good at it. We yeah. have you do the things lawyers do. Look at a case, advise the client, draft a document. And then later we build on that. You go to court, you argue things, and then you, you, 
you know, there are discussions about settlement and, and then how do you enforce judgment at the end of it. So litigation takes you through the whole thing from the client walking through your door saying, you know, uh, this is what happened. This is my sorry tale. Can I sue somebody or not? All the way through to you're, you're trying to, you know, seize their house and sell it to, to satisfy the judgment. Because winning a court case is one thing. Getting the money is something else. <laughs> So right. we take you through that that entire process. So you, you're all the things you've you've looked at, and and you know, in theory, from your law school days, well, we show you, okay, this is how that actually plays out every day as you're sitting at your desk. Do you have to do the PLT after you do your degree in order to practice law, or like are there other avenues to become a lawyer, or is that a set degree PLT? practice situation that's it um uh exactly uh when you uh, apply to the admitting authority in new south wales it's the lpab i realize some of your students are going to be uh and listeners are going to be in other states so there's an admitting authority in each state but on the assumption i'm in new south wales on the assumption most will be applying to new south wales i'll just use that as an example yeah uh, all, all much the same uh all, all they need it's, it's different to say the the us or now what they've gone to in the uk where you sit you know a bar exam everyone sort of heard about the you know the bar exam well that's not how it works in australia mm. in australia the, they the admitting authorities assume if you've got a degree from a university and you've got a a, a um, certificate of completion from a PLT provider that, you know, we've made sure you know what you're doing and you don't need to demonstrate to them that you know what you're doing. So the application process is pretty simple. You just show evidence of qualification and then uh, a GDLP or um, different ways again in different states. Some providers have, um, uh, they do it by way of a grad cert instead of a grad dip. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Those two bits together. I went to uni, I went to a PLT provider. I know what I'm doing. And and you're in, um, yeah. you know, as long as you've got that, uh, um, uh, you will you will get admitted unless there is some other reason not to admit you. So every admitting authority has their disclosure obligations. There's guidelines to that on all the websites. Mm. Um, some have you. I mean, they all, all will have you disclose, um, you know, any criminal convictions and things like that. Um, what they define as a criminal matter needing disclosure varies from state to state runs the gamut from, you know, a string of parking tickets up through to manslaughter. And we've seen all those. Wow. Uh, quite an interesting um, and eclectic group of students have come through our doors over the years. Um, <laughs> I believe academic misconduct is something that you also need to declare, absolutely. disclose that, as that's, well. That, yeah, I mean, look, uh, along with murder, that's at the top of the list. <laughs> that, that's what that's, <laughs> the authorities want to know that. So academic conduct record, they want a clean record from both uni and, and PLT. So that's absolutely something that you need to disclose. But once you've done that uh, and satisfied them, um, and it takes a lot to not get admitted. I mean, you really need to be at the serious, at the egregious end of offending to, to not get admitted. Mm. Um, uh, uh, you're in, but it is absolutely essential. You do need to have... A, um, a, a GDLP or equivalent uh, on the practical side of things because there's no exam. I mean, that's the only way the mini authority knows that you've you've been exposed to and learned those skills because there's no other way to demonstrate that other than uh, the thing you get from us. I think I heard somewhere as well that the process is different for solicitors and barristers. Is that? It, it is. It It's slightly different now. It used to be significantly different. Now, I'm old enough, thankfully, we're not on camera, so nobody can see the gray hairs and the wrinkles, but I'm old enough to have been admitted a while ago when um, 
you were admitted as either a solicitor or a barrister. So it was a, quite a different process, quite a different ceremony. Um, and if, if, if you were admitted as a barrister, as I was, you didn't need to do a PLT program. So this, this is the dirty little secret that I have is that I actually never attended college of law because I went <laughs> to the bar. Back at really? A yes. Back at it. It was, look, it was a gutsy thing on my part, and I, I won't bore everybody with the details of why. It was not my intention, but I, and I certainly don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I, was, I was on the steepest learning curve in the history of the legal profession, but that, that's, a, that's a topic for a, a, a future podcast. Um, but back in the day, when I was admitted, I, I was admitted a small group of barristers all standing there in our wigs and gowns in front of, the, I'll date myself here, the, the then Chief Justice in New South Wales, Murray Gleeson. And so he, he presided over my admission ceremony, but that that that's not the way it's done anymore. Back back then, you 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 made the decision and you were admitted as one or the other. And if you were if you were admitted as a solicitor, you did college. If you were going to be admitted as a barrister and you hadn't already done college and acted as a solicitor, you you did the the bar uh, readers course. So I was a I was a pupil. I had a pupil master. And, you know, it was very old Dickensian English style back in those days. Now it's different. So that that's the little history lesson. Now everybody, regardless of where you're going to practice, what you're going to do, you get admitted through the same process. You're now simply admitted as a lawyer, okay, uh, in the Supreme Court in New South Wales. And then once, so everybody goes through that door. Then you turn right or left, and you get admitted as either a solicitor. You go on the role of solicitors, the role of, of barristers. And then there, again, there are different rules. If you're a solicitor, you're under a restricted practicing certificate for two years under the supervision of a of a master solicitor and again if you go then to 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 be a barrister you are similar to what i went through but now it's, it's called um there are um tutors and um uh students and then and, but you're under supervision for a year under a, a, an experienced barrister um before you get your training wheels taken off but to answer your question everybody's admitted as a lawyer yeah and then you can make that decision about going to be a solicitor or a barrister whenever and however you want excellent well that's good to know I have some questions for you from students, if Wonderful. you're happy to answer a couple of those. Sure. So we have a question from Cassie. Why should students choose College of Law for their PLT? Uh, gr great question. Look, we've been doing it for nearly 50 years. Um, we, we, for the most part, defined what practical legal training is when, when it came in across the country half a century ago to replace the old article Clark system. Um, college, uh, college of Law was made up of the hand-picked um, uh, representatives that the legal uh, admitting authorities across the country said, right, tell us what a PLT program should look like. So we designed it. We've been doing it the longest. We, we've had, uh, I can't even remember the current statistics, close to, I think, 80,000 graduates over the 50 years. So pretty much yeah. anybody that's anybody in practice went through, came through our doors at some time or another. So, so look, we, we, we know what we're doing. We do it well. Um, uh, we, we are synonymous with quality. Everyone knows look, if you want a good experience, good quality education, come to college law. So that's one. Yeah. Uh, but that's a very high level sort of answer. <laughs> at a more granular level, there are a few other things that keep us at the forefront, we don't, we don't just sit back and and, and uh, post through on on our reputation because that would be particularly uh, useful to students. So how how do we keep at the top of the? Uh, that would mean that you would be ripe for disruption if you did do that. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and there is a fair bit of disruption out there at the moment. So which is mm. keeping us on our toes as it should. We welcome competition. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so the, a few other more practical ways that we keep our game sharp and keep delivering what we consider to be the best product, if we can use that crass term for our students. Of course um, you can. Uh, we have always made a point to be aligned with the profession. We, we were created to be something other than a university. And we are, as I touched on in my earlier uh, comments, quite different to a university. We, we don't teach the same things. We don't teach the same way. We don't assess the same way. Uh, so we are aligned with the profession. Um, we work very closely with, with all the law societies, many authorities, bar associations, um, firms from you know big end of town to sole practitioners and everything in between. We, our finger is well and truly on the pulse of uh, the legal profession. So that enables us to uh, keep our materials current, relevant, uh, and most importantly, this, this is probably the biggest single feature that, that uh, sets us apart from the others. We do not focus on teaching our students the skills that lawyers needed five years ago. We're constantly updating our, our program and our approach. Every few years we renew it with an eye to, all right, what's the profession telling us lawyer, junior lawyers are going to be doing five years from now? Those are the skills we focus on. Now, obviously, certain things are constant, but things I mentioned before, advising clients, drafting documents. But the way lawyers do those things change. And, and I imagine technology. Exactly. I was just going to say the pace of change is extraordinary at the moment. Technology has changed everything. So we devote a tremendous amount of time. We created our uh, Center, for, uh, Center for Legal Innovation about five or six years ago now. It's a hub of um, uh, legal tech, general tech, um, futurist folk that just lock themselves in rooms um, and come up with new make sure they know what everything that's going on globally around systems technology the practice of law the practice the world generally the stuff our clients are doing it's not just how do lawyers work lawyers have to act for clients that are out there you know uh, running startups and tech firms and and so we, we need to understand the tech in the law office but more importantly we need to understand and be teaching the tech out there in the world because that's what lawyers need to know you can't advise a client that's running a tech-based startup if you don't understand the, that and the world that they operate in. So mm -hmm. that's what we're always doing is looking, um, looking to the, uh, the future. And another thing that, that makes us, um, uh, sets us apart is all of our lecturers across the country. Um, we've got permanent staff and uh, casual staff and adjunct staff, probably close to 300 in total teaching our students on any given day around the country. They mm -hmm. are all either still active in the profession as solicitors or barristers um, or had long practices that they're now winding down and, and they've only been out of practice a short period of time. So we have we bring in barristers to teach the advocacy workshop. We bring in mediators to teach um, negotiation and dispute resolution. Uh, we bring in um, you know psychologists and counselors to teach the well-being bits um, of the course. And throughout the course, you've got uh, our students have a dedicated lecturer that is, as I say, either in practice or only just recently out of practice after a long time. I, I spent 25 years at the bar, but I haven't been in a courtroom in five years because uh, I concentrate on my college work. So I, I already consider myself out of date and too stale. I won't teach advocacy now because they our students deserve to be taught advocacy by somebody that's actually been to court in the last five years. And that's not me anymore. So so that that's a really important part about our program is, is we by design from the beginning, our business model is such that we... We always have practitioners, hundreds of them, cycling through our course, giving students current, up-to-date, relevant information and experience from somebody that actually does it every day. And that, 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 that sits at the core of what, of what 
what we do. Uh, we get no government funding of any description. We're 100% funded by the fees that students pay. The money goes right back into the program. So how that shows up in real ways for our students is better student um, uh, lecturer ratios. So our, our lecturers have smaller groups of students so they can give you better and closer and more personal attention. As an ex-teacher, I can tell you very much that that's very important. <laughs> yeah. it, and like I said, that, that sits at the core of our program. Our, our students interact with their lecturers almost on a daily basis. As I said, that's, that's, we're, we're playing the role of the mentor, the, the showing you the ropes person, as I said. So, so that, that's, our whole course is designed around that contact and it, for it to be meaningful um, and the best possible experience. Um, we need to have small um, uh, small numbers of students uh, with with the lecturers. Then mm. on that, there's all the support that goes with it. We've got 20 or 30 people that work in student services. So that when a student has a query about filling out a form or how do I enroll or what course should I take? When you ring, somebody answers the phone. When you send an email, somebody replies to it. Um, we've got another 20 people in our IT department. So if something goes wrong, <laughs> somebody fixes it straight away for you. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a, another... I think we've got 30 people that work in our content design and development program. So their job all day, every day, is to just sit there and keep making sure our, the materials that we give you to use, the practice papers that you read, the files that you use, and all the activities I described earlier, that they're current, they're relevant, they're interesting, um, and that you know they are designed the best possible way to, to give you the best possible experience and, and um uh, and get as much out of our course as you can. So it's 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 not just one thing. It's it's there are a lot of moving parts of college, and we make sure that they're all adequately funded, so that we're constantly doing the best possible thing uh, and turning out the best possible um, course that we can for our students. Yeah, and then just look. The final bit to probably mention briefly is look flexibility because we're so big and we have so much of the market we're doing it for so long. We we offer students more choices. We we kept tallied up recently and we've got something like 180 different versions of our course that are run in various places to various different audiences. So um, we have multiple start dates. We have in New South Wales we've got the longest time I think between uh, between course start dates is about four weeks. In busy times of the year, we know when students want to do the course. Most of our students choose to start from the end of November through to the beginning of uh, March. Mm -hmm. So probably 70 or 80 percent of our students start in that time. We've got courses literally starting every week or two during that time. We have full time options, part time options. At the moment, we've got virtual options, face to face options. We're working on a hybrid option now so, so that students can get the best of both worlds. Um, you, you, there's plenty of opportunity for students to, to work around the course and to more importantly work the course around their lives. We, we know the modern student has um, home responsibilities, uh, work responsibilities. Most of our students are working two or three jobs. We know that. <laughs> uh, so we make our course as convenient and flexible as possible to fit into our students' very busy lifestyles. So look, there's the why to do college pitch <laughs> that's very good that's really good to know um i for one definitely appreciate flexibility when it comes to study for sure because yep i am one of those students that does have home responsibilities and does have work responsibilities and yeah makes it easier to know that i can slot things in when i need to all right so we've got another question from nicole this time so what is the difference between the PLT program through College of Law and, say, a paid grad program that is run through a firm? Um, look, great question. 
it, it, the, the short answer is very little because most of the paid programs through the firms are done by the College of Law. We, we have what we call our cooperative program, and it's been, we've been running it for 20 years now, I think. And um, at one time, we, we were doing the courses, a bespoke custom course in-house for all the large firms across the country, uh, and even some middle and smaller firms, um, uh, and, and delivering a, a consistent um course through to all the grads so so you actually even say you got hired at you know um king and lord mallison or um, clayton Utes or wherever you ended up you were doing the college program you had a college lecturer um so so it was the it was the college course but a few things have changed in recent years um uh there are now other providers that are for a variety of reasons doing some of those um uh, courses for some of those firms uh some firms have changed uh, their um, their attitude and their approach, and they've decided, well, look, we want something a little different to what um, uh, our, our grads are getting from college, not with no comment on our quality or anything like that. In fact, they tell us with tears in their eyes that they're going in a different direction. It usually has to do with they've got um, some sort of a commercial arrangement with another university provider. You know, they've, they've got a lecture theater named after them. They've got representative on their innovation hub whatever it is there are all these you know new commercial and educational entanglements out there the politics so, of business yes the politics of business and 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 look some go away some come back but so we, we do all that means is we can't say anymore that look we we do it for all the firms because we don't there are two of the of the of the top 10 firms now that are getting their plt um uh program done by by some com competitors of ours and that, that's fine well and good but like i said we welcome competition we're 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 not in it we're not chasing market share we're, we've got plenty we're not we're not um just after the dollar like i said that's just not our approach and and as i said earlier competition and you know is is at the core of making sure that students are getting a good product wherever they go so so look we welcome all that so uh, but we're still doing the lion's share we've got 40 firms big and small across the country that are running all their grads uh, through our program. So that's the first thing is it, 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 most chances are pretty good. It's a college program anyway, yeah. but where it's slightly different is, uh, because the firms do certain type of work, um, they, they want our program to be a little different to our general program. So for example, they, they, uh, a lot of, a lot of firms don't allow students to choose from the full range of elective subjects, for example, because, mm -hmm. you know, a large commercial firm, they're not necessarily going to want their, their grads to do, uh, say, criminal law or uh, family law if, if their grads are never going to work on those sorts of matters. So yeah, they that's fair enough. They tend to restrict the choices to a bit, to more commercially oriented things, banking and finance, um, consumer law, employment law, um, admin law, uh, things along those lines. And, and, and so that's one thing. Um, uh, and the other thing is when uh, they they ask us to um, do uh, slightly more commercially oriented tasks and activities. So great example of this is in property law. So in property, in our general course, students are exposed to conveyancing by doing a, a conveyancing matter that is one you're going to do mostly in practice. You know, the, the uh, quarter acre corner block in a residential area where you've got a vendor and a purchaser and, you know, one outgoing mortgagee and a uh, mortgage or and one incoming um, mortgagee. And you've got all that, right? So, uh, but the commercial firms say, well, hang on, our grads aren't going to do that. They, they deal, they're, you know, they're going to be buying, they're going to be involved in transactions for office blocks and hospitals and things like that. So we created, we create other files for them 
the same concepts, you've still got a vendor and a purchaser, and you've still got some mortgages that need to be discharged, and you've got you know maybe a tenant that has a lease, but instead of one tenant, you got ten tenants because there's a pharmacy and a radiologist and um uh and, and all that kind of you know gift shop and a cafe and all the things that a hospital might have. Um and mm. instead of one bank lending a million dollars, you've got six uh, uh, um, uh, lending institutions that are lending a, a, a total of you know five hundred million dollars. So the numbers get bigger <laughs> and, the, yeah. and and the transactions get a little more complex. Um, but it's still it's still the basics, it's the fundamentals. This is how you convey you know one property from a, a vendor to a, a purchaser so so we do certain things like that for the firms just to tailor the work to, to more of the sorts of things their grads are going to be experiencing um, yeah. in, in practice but beyond those subtle differences it's the exact same course fair enough yeah and I imagine it might be hard to get into a paid grad program whereas if you just did it straight through college of law yourself then you know you can get into it quickly get it done quickly get it out of the way yeah Yeah. I imagine that's probably a bit of a difference too yeah and look in some all of the firms certainly the ones we deal with they've for for the longest time it's been part of their grad recruitment process is that they pay for obviously the college of law experience and most of them for grads that they engage that maybe have already done college with us, they they reimburse the, the grad for that. So you can, mm. you know, if you do it yourself, if you don't want to wait to see if, oh, look, am I going to get a job at this firm or that firm, or am I going to get a job at a firm at all? But I don't want to wait. I don't want to sit around and wait. I'll just jump in and, and do my PLT now with college. And then you do get that job at KWM or wherever it might be. The, the firm might very well, I can't make promises on behalf of the firms. I don't know. Mm. Every situation is different. But, you know, the, the, for the most part, the firms will say, well, right. Well, you know, everybody that you're coming in with, the whole cohort, um, we're paying for them to do college. You've already done it. So we're not going to make you do it again, but we'll pay you and you can do it along with them just as a refresher. And certainly that first week, the skills week in terms of team building and the like. And mm. look, a perfect example of this from my own experience. My, my son and daughter both finished their law degree uh, in June. Like everybody else that, that could, they've just gone off and traveled around Europe. They've just come back. Lovely. And they're right at this exact point, this choice point. Where am I going to go? What? Where am I going to get a job? When am I going to do college? Who? Um, who's going to pay for it, etc. So, um, they've taken two different career paths. They're both they've both got jobs as paralegals. And my daughter's working in one career path where she's she's just saying, "Look, I'm just happy with what I'm doing. Don't really know where I'm going to go. What I'm going to do. I might do college. I'm probably not going to end up at a firm that'll pay pay for it. I might do college um, in November. Maybe wait till January." Then my son, completely different path. He, he's working at a larger firm. He now wants to apply to their grad program. He's going to apply to other grad programs. So he's saying, well, I'm not going to make any decisions until I know whether I'm going to go to a firm that's going to pay for it or not. I should mm-hmm. know that by uh, end of the year. Then I'll figure out where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. So so I'm, I'm, I'm uniquely placed to know what's going on in the student mind at Choice Point out there because <laughs> I've got two of them that tell me every week. <laughs> that's very helpful, very helpful. I imagine it might. Like it's good to know that that could be a bit of a negotiation tool if you've already paid for your own college of law program. You can be, yeah, well, if you want to hire me, then I'll just take a reimbursement for my college of law. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yep. 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 You're paying for everybody else. Uh, why wouldn't you do the same for me? Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Okay. So we've got another question from another student, Rachel, who um, is a bit a bit more of a specific question. So we now degree through UNE 
we have 16 core units and 11 of those are priestly units. So can a student start their PLT early if they have completed the priestly units, but they still have maybe one core unit and two electives or which I believe the electives are non-law electives remaining? All right, there, there's a bit of good news and bad news in the answer here. So um, some of, one of the most confusing aspects is the difference between a, a university's core subject as opposed to a priestly subject. So, so from yeah. the question, it sounds like the priestlies are done, that's fine. And so just because a university has some additional core subjects, there's no requirement that those are done before you start early. It's right. just, the, just the priestlies. As long as all priestly 11s are done, the admitting authority will, will entertain an application for early commencement. However, the bad news is that to qualify for early commencement, you can have, you have to have the priestlies done, but you can have no more than two subjects remaining. So if you have a core, the fact that it's core doesn't matter. It's just what matters is you've got three. You've got, yeah. if you've got a core and two electives, that's one too many. They okay. won't have to start if you've got three subjects. And, and even the if the electives are non-law subjects. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say whether law or non-law doesn't matter because what it comes down to is not whether you've got the legal background. It's just whether you've got time yeah. to, to devote to PLT. So if, you, if you've got three electives, even if they're all non-law, you could be doing a, a, an arts law degree and all your law is finished and all you've got is three arts subjects left. They'll mm -hmm. still say no because they'll say, no, you've got, you, you can't, that's close to a full-time uni load. You can't do that and college at the same time. That so, makes sense. So if, if you can orchestrate things so that you've only got two electives left, absolutely, you can start early. And then that, that allows students to do, essentially finish off their last semester at uni with a light load and their college at the same time. So it can save you, you know, six months or so, which um, look, my personal advice is don't be in such a rush. <laughs> keep telling us, you know, the, your generation is going to live to be 100. You're going to you're going to work till you're 80. You're going to have 30 something jobs across five different industries. You know, yeah. You're going to be on that treadmill a long time. Yeah. What's the rush? Enjoy in, in, enjoy the carefree days. Do that. But we understand. Look, I look. I was in my 20s once. I know what it's like. You you, you want to get out there. You, you want to make your mark. You want to get going. Yeah. Um, you, you're anxious to 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 um, get your career started. So look, I fully understand that, but this is just the way the, the admitting authorities can put a little bit of break on that mm. and say, no, just take the time. Um, uh, we'll let you start early if you must, but you know you have to satisfy these requirements. And, and that's a matter entirely for the admitting authority to, to get early uh, uh, permission for early commencement. The process is you, you apply for that to the LPAB yeah. or equivalent in another state, and they will look at all a whole range of things. What subjects have you got? How many? whether you're doing a full-time course, a part-time course, what your family circumstances are. It's, it's not just a rubber stamp process. Uh, yeah. Everybody the authority, you know, they turn their mind to these things because they want to make sure if they're going to give you permission to start early, they're not um, setting you up for failure. Mm, fair enough. So uh, last question, question from Cassie. Yeah. And this is about placements. So the, the practical element, I believe that there are placements as part of a PLT program. Yes? Yes. yes. How do you go about finding those placements for students for the program? Is the student responsible for finding their own placement or is it something that the college does? Okay. Uh, ultimately, yes, it is for the student to find their placement. College does an awful lot to assist in that process. We, we're out there 
beating the bushes, talking to the profession, as I say, on a regular basis to make sure they have plenty of, that they understand their obligations and responsibilities. And if the whole system to work, they need to have lots of places available for students to come and get this um, experience and, uh, and, and and be able to get it done so they, their uh, admission is not delayed. So, so we do a lot of work behind the scenes to just through our everyday contacts with the profession to make sure there are placements out there. The second thing is probably more relevantly for the students is we have a notice board, a jobs board on our website, where at any given time we've got 150 or so positions, both um, work experience positions and even graduate roles. Mm, uh, good to know, so good to know. The profession knows if, if they put an ad in the paper or on, I don't even know if people even still put ads in the papers. I don't know age. either, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm showing my age. Let's say they put, put something online, you know, in Seek or something like that. They'll get a thousand responses. They don't want a thousand responses. They want, you know, a couple dozen hand-picked responses. Mm. So they know that they, they if they place their um, the position on our website, the right person will find it straight away. They'll hire the two or three people they want, and then bang, they just take the ad down immediately as soon as the positions are filled. So it's a, it's a, it's a living document. It, it literally changes hourly as positions go off, new positions come on, and and uh, so uh, between students just going out and finding their own placements through their own networks and connections, and using our uh, jobs notice board to help them, we're finding traditionally ninety percent of our students report that they have no problem getting placements. Um, they're regularly getting them, they're good quality placements. Um, and, uh, you know, it's only a small number of students that for, for one reason or another, they have some difficulty. And, and we usually work closely with them uh, to assist if we can. So, which brings me to the next point is we, the traditional placement period is, is 15 weeks, 75 days of placement. I won't go into all the rules and details around that in this podcast, but you can go 15 over. weeks sounds so much longer than 75 days. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then look, that can be done, you know, one or two or three days a week over a longer period of time. You've got, you've got four years to complete our entire course. The, the work experience okay. placement is just one component of our course. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, like I said, four years to do that. And, and you can do it. This is important. I will get into this level of detail. Um, you, let's say you go the 75-day option, which still 80 or 90% of our students are doing even in the pandemic. Um, you can count up to 60 of those 75 days. Um, uh, so let's say 12 weeks. You can count that for work you've done while you were at uni before you've started a college. And you can go back okay. two years to do that. So if you're in your penultimate or final year now, and you've done some work at a, at a, you know, you've done a clerkship or you've worked at a community legal center or you just, you know, spent a few days at, at your aunt's family law practice or whatever it might be. You, you can count those days. Uh, you can go back two years and count up to 60 of the days. So a lot of students don't realize that. And that can give you a, a substantial head start um, uh, if you've got those sorts of days. And if you're in earlier years, uh, well, penultimate year or third year, you can, um, uh, you know, if you hadn't thought about getting that kind of work, go out and find it and get it because that's money in the bank. You can do it as long as it's, you know, only you can go back as I said, two years before you start your college program. Mm. Um, so that that's the traditional way. Now, now uh, coming out of the global financial crisis, which uh, for me, it was yesterday for most of our listeners, I'm sure that's ancient history, but the global <laughs> financial crisis, long before the pandemic disrupted the world, the GFC disrupted the world. And one of the things that came out of that was um, that students did struggle to get placements because a lot of law firms stopped hiring. Uh, uh, in the wake of the GFC. So we actually introduced an alternative program back then. 
to help students that were struggling. So it's called our clinical experience module, and it allows a student to, to do only three weeks or 15 days of work experience and have it count as the full 75 by doing some additional coursework uh, and doing uh, some analysis and self-reflection on the actual work experience that they had to sort of beef it up and make it count for the full 75 days. So we've been running that program for close to 10 years now, I guess, or probably more than 10 years now. And like I said, traditionally about 10% of our students take advantage of that, either because they're struggling to get work, but mostly just because they it's, they can save time by doing that. They, they, it's, it's an extra six weeks of coursework and three weeks of placement, so they, they can save themselves uh, some time. And it, it's, one, it's the only bit of the college uh, suite of programs that costs extra money because there is some extra teaching involved. Um, yeah. I think it's currently about $1,500 or something like that. So, and that can go on fee help as well. But so, so that option is always there for students. Now with the pandemic, suddenly a third option came up and mm. it's still running, but we don't know for how much longer it will run. All the admitting authorities across the country gave us special pandemic discretionary powers to make sure that no student was disadvantaged because suddenly there were no placements because you know the whole world shut down. Mm. So we, we've taken that three week option and turned it into a zero-week option. So you, wow. you, it, that's called our in-practice component. And it basically takes the, 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 that three-week option and added some extra components to it, principal among them. It's a couple extra weeks and a couple extra activities. But the key change was we introduced a, a, a mentor. So we, we've got now a practicing solicitor who meets with the student for an hour at three different times during that part of the course, the, the, you know, the normal bit that was the three-week thing. Okay. And, and so that gives you experience, contact with and opportunity to, to talk through your activities and get advice and experience, uh, stories about experience from an actual practicing lawyer. Now, mm-hmm. that we, we keep being told by the admitting authority sort of in six-month blocks, yep, you can keep doing that, you can keep doing that, but, you know, until they declare the pandemic over and then they say, right, you, that is gone, you have to go back to just your two options. But we've we've now, we've got permission to actually extend that. We had permission to go to the to the end of this year, and now we've got permission to go to 30 June. So we will be going, uh, that's a, an option for students. So any students that are in their final year are, are going to be coming out and making some decisions about um, PLT soon. Mm. Limited time offer. <laughs> you, you can <laughs> if, if you if you either can't get work experience or you don't want to have to go down that route, you can do the the IPC if you if you start with us um, uh, and you get enrolled in that part of it before the middle of next year. Fair enough. Hmm. Well, that is all the questions that I have for you from our body of students, Morton. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, if students would like more information about College of Law's PRT program, you can check that out on the website. And there is a guidebook, I believe, up there to be downloaded, as well as um, contact details so that you can contact someone, give them a call, speak to them about any of your PLT needs. So thank you, Morton, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Lara, for having me. That was Morton Hirschdorfer. Executive Director of the Pre-Admissions Program for College of Law. And, yeah, if you need any more information about the PLT program through College of Law, then by all means go check out their website. It is almost time for the 4pm news where I bid you farewell. But 
before I go, I do have some updates from the Law Student Society for you. We have our AGM coming up on the 4th of October. So keep an eye out in your inbox for that. Uh, You'll be getting notifications of that hopefully later on today. And nominations will be open for positions on the committee uh, for that AGM. So by all means, if you want to be a part of the Law Student Society Committee, then be sure to nominate for a position for next year. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show today and that you got some valuable information about the PLT program for Morton. I know I certainly did. I, for one, really had no idea what was in store after graduating from a law degree and now I know what the next steps are, so yay. I look forward to chatting more about legal and political issues with you next week. If you have any suggestions for topics, then please reach out to me, Lara Learning Law on Instagram or Lara Glasson on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Precedence and Politics on Chin FM 89.3.